I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. All right, it's the end of 2023, so it's kind of uh, that time of the year where we're going to do reflections, and I figured it might be fun for uh, Garrett and I, Garrett Morrison, co-host of this podcast, to get on and talk about some of the golf courses that we saw. So we're going to kind of break down our favorite new courses, like brand new, new build courses that we saw that are, were a like really like kind of a historic in in the context of the last 20 years of of golf course development openings this year. So there was, you know, if we had dedicated our our entire year just to seeing new golf courses, I think we would have gotten to all of them, but that's just one piece of what we do as a company. Um we also are going to talk about our favorite remodels. So one of the other trends on top of new courses is tons of remodels. It's never been a better time to be a golf course architect than right now. And then we're going to talk a little bit about our favorite um, new to us course. So it could be an existing course. It could be a golden age course that was new to us this year, as well as a uh, final kind of closing discussion around what we're excited for in 2024, which will prove to be another big year of golf course openings. Garrett, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm a little under the weather. I think people will notice that I'm keeping my voice at a very low volume. And that's because every time I speak up, my throat yells at me. And uh, I think that this is hitting a lot of us at this time of year. You know, kids are coming home from school with weird stuff uh, going on in their bodies and passing that to parents. So I'm sure I'm not the only one out there who's struggling a little bit. But that's why I sound you know, a little more low volume than usual. There will be quite a contrast between our voices, Andy. I think that people have already noticed that there is quite a contrast between our voices in general, but that will be even more pronounced uh, today. So that that's where I'm at. By the way, people should know that this is the Friday Golf Podcast, right? I'm not sure that you said that up uh, off the top. I, well, yeah, I didn't. I did not. I did not. <laughs> I, you know, um, I will say, having just got over, I got over like a couple week... Um, debilitating cold from my daughter and uh it's it's awful it's just you see it coming yep. there's nothing you can do about it you're just counting the days till you get sick when once they come home with it you know listen there are worse things that i could be doing right now than talking about golf and podcasting and writing about golf uh and staying home while doing it and so mostly i'm pretty grateful but uh, I'm going to try to get myself uh, a little bit up in terms of energy here and go into this subject, which I am very excited to talk about because it's been a super exciting year in golf architecture. All right. Before we jump in, let's take a quick minute to talk about our partner, Club Champion. Listen, if you want to get dialed in, you want to, if, you're, if you're looking at, hey, I'm going to play some new golf next year, I want to I not have to worry about your equipment. I think this is the best bet. You get a tour level fitting. Um, you know, you, some would say it might be a better than a tour level fitting because a lot of tour players are, are bound to one OEM. And we see these people be like, 
Oh, Colin Morikawa switched drivers through the year. You didn't like the new driver. You had to go back to that. Think about this, that world-class players are dealing with this. If you go to Club Champion, you don't have to deal with this. It, it is an outstanding experience. And actually, like I think one that you take away a lot from beyond just, you know, hey, I'm getting new clubs. I'm spending a bunch of money on new clubs. I think you take away some stuff. You learn stuff about your golf game and the equipment setup needs that you have. So if you go in there, there is, I think, 50,000 possible uh, head and shaft combinations throughout the store. Um, They have stores across the country. And right now they have their best offer they have ever given. It's $100 for a full bag fitting. This is usually, I believe, about a $400 value. So about 75% off. $100 for a full bag fitting. Uh, if you use the promo code Friday, the other thing, if you don't need a full bag of clubs, you're looking at, if you're in the market for wedges or a putter or a driver or fairway woods, you can get a $50 fitting with a club purchase. Uh, use the promo code Friday. Uh, you book it at clubchampion.com. This is a, all, all of these bookings to get this deal need to be done by Christmas Eve, which December 24th. Um, and then they need to be completed by January 31st. So you book it now. You can book it for January. Uh, it just has to be done. You have to complete the fitting by January 31st. This is the best deal they've ever offered. Uh, they've been a spot. Uh, they've been a partner of ours for a couple of years. Uh, big thanks to club champion and go get fit by the best in the industry at club champion. All right. So let's talk about it. Best new golf course, um, that you saw this year. Okay. Now, this answer might annoy people because it's a little bit predictable, but the best new golf course I saw this year was the Lido at Sand Valley. Now, is this a new golf course? That's one question about it. Is this Should this be in a restoration or renovation or something like that category? Is this technically a new build? That's one of the many impossible-to-answer questions that this course raises. But the reason this course has stuck with me so much, the reason I've been thinking about the Lido ever since I played it for the first time in the summer is that it is so intricate that every time you kind of go back through the holes, you remember one more thing about each hole. You remember one little intricacy that you may have noticed in passing as you were playing the course, but it didn't really like fully stick in your brain. And so it didn't become part of your narrative of the course at the time. But when you go back and remember some of these things, all these layers keep showing up. There is so much to absorb with this course and it gives you such a, such a clear picture of what the degree of CB McDonald's brilliance was that I just I have to give it the tip of my hat uh, for uh, for this year. That is the most impressive and probably most important course that I saw this year. But I didn't see nearly as much as you did, so I'll I'll put that out there. Yeah, I think one of the things that the Lido would definitely be in the running of of mine, and one of the reasons why, and it shares this with the course that I'm going to pick, is that every single I I like would just love to have the Lido be the golf course that I play all the time because of how many aspects, like just the the design of the golf course makes you think so much and presents you so many different ways that you can go about achieving the, I want to get the whole ball in the hole as quick as possible. 
And that golf course, you know, it just, it, you, you hit the nail on the head. You remember different things. When you think about it, you, you're drawn to different holes and different aspects of the golf course. Um, I just think that, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame. I, I always think about this with resort courses. I think old McDonald would fall into this bucket too. I think the loop at Forest Dunes falls into this bucket is that we get these like wildly intricate like puzzles of golf courses. The Lido is certainly in this. And they're at these like remote resorts that you might go to one time in your life, right? right. This is this type of golf course if it was in a municipal or a public daily fee setting in a air area of the country that was accessible, more accessible. Like and I get these these are accessible areas for a lot of the country, but there are long drives, and you're not like if you're not a member at Lido, you have to get a tea time. It's it's hard to do. Um, so the idea of some of these golf courses, some of the courses, really, when I think about that, I'm enthralled and want to go play time after time after time again and again are like very difficult places to get to. So that's like one of my like nitpicks of this whole thing is like. These golf court, like, and I think hopefully we're getting, we're building uh, public golf and accessible golf is always the last, the last frontier of innovation in golf course design and golf course construction. We're just starting to see, and we're going to talk about it a little later, like public short courses, which have <laughs> been a, become a staple in the resort industry. So the fact that this is where resort design and, and developers are going is this type of intricacy. I think it's really good for maybe 10 years from now in public design, but who knows where we're going to be in 10 years. Right. Um, so. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, the, when you play the Lido, you can see why it was made to be a private course, right? Why it was made to be a member course. It's because it's a course that really rewards repeat play, but also it's one that, if you play it just once in your life as part of a resort experience, you may not like it that much, especially if you play it back to back with Mammoth Dunes. Now, I don't want to make this like a, a bash Mammoth Dunes moment in the podcast or a bash David McClay kid part of the podcast because I really think that Mammoth Dunes and Gamble Sands are, are very smart and intentional in what they do. I'm writing about Gamble Sands right now, so I'm uh, for club TFE. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about kind of that kid philosophy of resort golf. And the more you think about it, the more you realize that it's basically in many ways, the polar opposite of the Lido approach to golf architecture. Whereas the Lido has an extreme amount of detail and intricacy, as you said, mammoth dunes, gamble sands, the David Kidd approach is more about simplicity and straightforwardness, presenting risk-reward options that are quite easy to see the first time you play the course. And so you can really engage with them the first time that you play the course. Whereas at the Lido, there's a lot there that you don't engage with the first time you play the course because you don't see it yet. Or it's an 80-yard wide fairway where you have, you just your ball doesn't go there, so you haven't been there, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and there's so much there in each part of the fairway. I mean, Mammoth Dunes also has 80 to 100 yard wide fairways, but a lot of them are, are fairly straightforward. 
And so, you know, and then when it comes to difficulty, totally different as well. The Lido is very difficult to play, especially if you're not familiar with the course. Whereas Mammoth Dunes, Gamble Sands, right away, you can kind of get aggressive with those courses. The Lido makes you feel insecure, uncertain, even fearful at times. And and you eventually get over that as you get more familiar with the course. Whereas right away, a course like Mammoth Dunes is friendly and outgoing. It's a golden retriever. Right away, it's your best friend. It's a great, great comparison. I like the bringing the dog in. You yeah, know? yeah. I thought that would appeal to when I'm, when, appeal when to I'm going, uh, the dog people when I'm go, out there. When I'm know? going for a run, you know, when I'm running and I run past dogs, I'm never worried about a golden retriever. No, exactly. Know? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, unless you think the golden retriever might might stop you and insist on being petted when you're trying to yeah, get a workout. Exactly. That's that's the most that well, you're. That's, 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 that's the most that you're I'm worried, worried about. about that. I'm not yeah, worried about that. Right. I'm I'm looking for reasons to stop running when I'm running. So, um, all right. So for me, we'll, we'll move this on for me. I had, you know, there, I saw a decent amount of new courses in the last calendar year to date. Um, I've, uh, a couple of them open next year. It's like, kind of like weird, like where you go. And, and, and if we go into just different buckets, right. I, I just think what's going on in Aiken, South Carolina is, is extraordinarily impressive. And I got to like, just be very open with like, I, I'm probably pretty conflicted here right uh, yeah it's all, it's all of andy's friends who are uh, building <laughs> yeah. golf courses so, outside of aiken what's going on here so i've uh you know zach blair who's been on this podcast a number of times was you know somebody that when i started this business i became friends with and you know it's been amazing to watch him uh build the tree farm and put that together um then uh you know old barnwell which is my pick uh is uh was the owner and, and founder of old barnwell i've known since i was like six years old he's he's the same he's friends with my sister in high school um and so i'm i'm kind of biased in both regards so i don't feel that bad you know picking between the two of them but i i am someone that might carry bias to these courses yeah. if you're gonna um, blame anything then then blame just the the brilliance and success of people who grew up in the north shore of chicago comic. <laughs> So, so anyways, uh, old Bardwell is my pick. Um, I was, I was really blown away. I, I, I had walked it last year, the seven hole loop that they had set up or six hole loop that they had set up. Yeah. Um, as as and, did I, that's, that's what I saw. And then I walked the rest of the course while it was still mm -hmm. more or less under construction. And I had walked that also, but a lot of stuff hadn't been built yet. Um, it was more kind of, this is where it's going. Um, I think like, you know, these two courses will forever, and I wrote a club TFE piece about this, uh, in the design notebook, these two courses, because of their proximity to each other, the time at which they were built, I mean, they were built basically in conjunction, their, their timelines are, are months, a couple months apart. It's truly amazing, um, that this happened like in this area. Um, and, and both of them are, are extraordinarily great additions to the golf landscape so with uh the tree farm you know the stars the is the land but with old barnwell it's got a really nice piece of land but i think what stars and this is you know obviously for me i think what gets me going most is is architectural features i get really into um seeing things built so like what i like about the 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 golf course is it's a good piece of land um, I, by no means is it a bad piece of land, 
But the piece of land is ramped up by some built features and some smart, you know, some greens, some hazards. And what I love about it, it's similar to Lido. There's a lot of space, but where you need to be changes a lot, right? And it, and I, th- I have to imagine that, you know, this golf course was re- effectively being built by Brian Schneider and Blake Conant at, at the same time that Brian Schneider was the lead associate on the Lido. I don't think that the reason that these golf courses to me feel very, you know, somewhat similar is, is it's not a, con- it's not a, uh, coincidence, right? I think that a lot of, um, things were, were, um, kind of put into this. And I think like, I, I think old Barnwell is going to be polarizing. I think people, <laughs> I saw it firsthand. I, I played with a buddy of mine, um, who, who like on the second green, he's a very good player played in the mid am last year on the second green, he putted off the green, you know, and we're playing after, with after Brian, driving the green, right? Yeah. yeah. We're playing with Brian Schneider. And like, you know, he's like outwardly pretty upset, like a few holes into the round. And, you know, and he's like, you know, these greens are insane. You know, it's all he could talk about was how insane the greens were. And you can see how if you if you have this belief that once I hit the green, I should automatically be afforded a two putt, that these greens will rub you the wrong way. But these greens are about being in the right position in the fairway to find the right position on the green. They're about understanding where the right miss is to be, you know, where you want to miss it. If, if, you, if you're in a bad position, where do I want to be to then get up and down? I need to be on this side. Otherwise, like, and again, what you said about Lido, it really rewards and, and makes you want to play it more and more because you're decoding this puzzle um, as you play it ever, time after time. Really some cool stuff about it is like there's some twists on some old stuff on on some on on some like, you know, modern architecture. Uh there is like a rendition of the first screen at National Golf Links of America. There's, you know, the next hole is kind of their take on the second hole at National Golf Links of America. They have some, you know, different um they they basically took a took a hole, built a hole out of Tom Simpson's book and flipped it. Right, it's the mirror of of a of a sketch that Tom Simpson never built, but it's a sketch from his book. And there's just some cool stuff. There's it's just some up uh, some vertical hazards. You definitely see where you know Brian Schneider's done extensive work in the Walter Travis portfolio, um, and obviously Blake Conant and him were building this together. They were they were co-designers. They were kind of you do this green. They were editing each other. But you see that overall aesthetic of of kind of that that upward vertical hazard, the idea of like small pockets and greens that you have to get to like a Walter Travis course would, and you know it, it's just super fun. I uh, I love it. I can't wait to go back there. I um and and the same is said. I you know and I want to be fair to Tree Farm. You know, I think that one of the amazing things about the old Barnwell uh development is the growing that uh that the agronomy agronomy team there accomplished. It's outstandingly mature for being brand new. Um, I haven't seen Tree Farm since Masters Week, and I saw Old Barnwell in November. I'm very excited to see Tree Farm, you know, seven months after, you know, it was it was very much preview play. So I haven't seen Tree Farm in its, you know, more realized, uh, you know, form. And I think that's always important. Like you're doing these new courses thing, 
like how a course ages is, you know, like what the best course today is might not be the best course. You know, what we think of best course today is might not be the best course in five years. How courses age, you know, is different, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, how courses settle in is so important. And it's something that really gets short shrift in the discussion of new courses. Very rarely do you see someone go back and reevaluate a course that they initially reviewed when it opened. And I think that that should be something that's done more often, that you really bring in to your consideration the, the, the dynamism and the evolution of a golf course. You know, much as Michelin reviewers go back to certain restaurants year after year to see if that restaurant has kept up its standards, we should do our best as people who talk about golf courses to go back and see golf courses after they've been around for a few years to see if they've, again, kept up their standards or even raised those standards. That's hard to do because it involves a lot of travel and there's always new stuff to see. But, you know, it's something we should talk about. When we get a chance to go see a course that has been around a few years, we should talk about it again. Um, so. One- one thing that I would love to to just you know put out there also, um, obviously this is Brian Schneider. This is a big kind of debut for him on the new build front with Blake Conant. Uh, it's exciting. We're entering this this time. We're going to have a lot of courses come online in the next couple of years with architects building their first couple golf courses. You know, we're we're finally like I think everybody's been clamoring for this like. Can some somebody hire somebody that's not Gil, Tom, or or Bill and Ben, right? You know, and or, and that's you know Gil Hans, Tom Doak, or or Corin Crenshaw, you know. But there haven't been the inventory of projects, the number of projects to to persuade a developer to go outside the box. Right now, we're seeing it where like developers are coming. Well, like you know, Bill and Ben can't do this till 2027 and, and Tom's booked till 2028 and Gil, you know, this is, so we have to go in a different direction, right? Is, is the discourse. So it's ex- really exciting to see new work from new architects, you know, that have been doing restoration work or, you know, re- remodels, like small remodels where they might, you know, tweak a hole or two here. Um, the other thing I think that, might get like that might not be as as fun of a story but is an important one is that we're watching two of the greatest architects in Corin Crenshaw uh, in terms of new builds Corin Crenshaw and Tom Doak you know if you start to stack up their resumes of of courses that they've built it is extraordinarily impressive and they are they are all work they're working on you know another litany of courses and you know, I think you could make an argument that so, that they're only getting better. So, like, what does the next five years of their golf courses really entail? And you know, and, and you're talking about legacies, right? You look at Alistair McKenzie's legacy. Like, what I always think about with Alistair McKenzie's legacy is like he. You could make an argument that he built the best course on four continents. You got, you know, Royal Melbourne. You got Cypress Point, you got a uh, jockey club mm. down in South America, and you got Mayla Hinch you could throw in the ring. Like, it, it might not <laughs> I, I be. Was, the, I was wondering what your fourth one would be. Lahinch, uh, you could, I, you I don't could, know if that's an Alistair McKenzie course through yeah. and through, but he, he definitely touched it. Yeah. So you, you start to get to this idea like uh, Alistair McKenzie, like that to me is legacy. So 
we're getting to the point in these these architects' career, and I think Gil's kind of maybe like ten years behind where they are right now in terms of like just career scope. So I don't want to like leave them out of this, but you know, they're I think they're in a little bit different spot. But like we're at this like legacy devi- defining moment, especially with how much work that these architects have coming up where it is it's going to be just really fun and and i think like i think a lot of people would look at like the recent builds that tom has had and say that that's some of his best work he's ever done it's certainly some of his most distinctive work and he's doing projects that are really interesting for one reason or another whether it's a new kind of property or a new kind of concept you know of course that we both saw this year that's new but technically opening fully next year is Sedge Valley. And and that's that's an exciting course for for a host of reasons. Gil Hance is is just getting into a part of his career when we're going to see more new build work from him. We've seen an awful lot of renovation and restoration as and well as new builds. He might be the best he might be the best to ever do the renovation restoration stuff. Right. Yeah, know? and and he's uh, certainly has has worked at <laughs> Uh, the most impressive list of clubs by far in America. And, uh, you know, he's continuing to do that as well as start to uh, do some more new build stuff like his work at, at Fields Ranch, which you saw this year and is is new. So, you know, it's it's very exciting. We, we have a uh, an embarrassment of riches right now for new golf courses, especially as compared to the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so uh, in this industry. And so I think we'll see a lot of exciting stuff. But like you, I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to see where Brian Schneider and Blake Conant want to take the craft next, because those are architects, along with Kyle Franz and others, who are trying to a little bit younger, a generation younger, and are trying to, to move things to the next step. So we'll see. All right. Let's talk about renovation candidates. What's, uh, what's on it for you? Well, I've got what may be a surprising pick here, and I'm going to talk about the Glen Golf Park. And this, again, is is just kind of turning into a, a Brian Schneider uh, tongue bath because he was involved in this project as well. But the lead architect on it was Craig Haltom, who is a Wisconsin-based architect who has served as the contractor for many of the Sand Valley courses, maybe all of the Sand Valley courses. Found found the land found at the Sand land. Valley. Yeah, That's he, why it's called Craig's Porch there you um, go. for any visitor. Yeah, so he was he was kind of exploring the state with his wife, and and that's how that property out in the middle of Wisconsin was found, and has also done the work uh, to bring back Lasonia Links to its its uh, former self, and uh, and so he's done some really cool work, but he's I mostly think Ron, based in Ron Wisconsin. Ron Force has done a lot of Lasonia's work too. Okay, I want to be just, clear. Just I want to just clear. yeah, I want to put that. <laughs> we out we don't we don't want to short shrift anybody, uh, yeah. especially Ron Force. So. Um, in any case, uh, Craig Haltom, uh, we haven't seen a lot of original design work from him. And this Glen Golf Park project is really interesting because it's not, you know, just a, a nip and tuck renovation. It was really a complete reimagining of this nine hole, very affordable public course property. And they did the work for quite cheap. They had some backing from. Mike Kaiser and his uh, Michael Kaiser and his wife. And so there was money there, but it wasn't a massive amount of money. 
And I think that if you just look at the changes that they made, I'm not, I'm not arguing that this is Glen Golf Park is now a top 100 golf course. That's never what it has been intended to be. But if you look at the specific changes that they've made, if you look at the comparison between the old golf course and the new golf course, so much of what they did is so smart and so replicable at other municipal facilities, especially nine holers. So one thing, they removed a few trees, not a huge amount of trees, but they removed trees in kind of the right spots so that they opened up the property a little bit. And then they just mowed out a whole lot of fairway. There's basically one cut out there, but it's not a super tight cut, right? It's a, it's a little bit longer. And so it doesn't require as many inputs, as much attention as a very kind of short fairway would require. So really sustainable maintenance, very simple, straightforward, and also provides a lot of room to play, a lot of possibility for angles, et cetera. Okay. Second thing they did, they didn't overdo it with the bunkers. The bunkers are really cool looking. They have some kind of like native grass fringe to them, but they're very simple shapes. They're pretty small and there's very few of them on property. You know, most of the bunkers on the golf course are on a single hole, a par three. I think it's six. And they basically, there's like four bunkers or three or four bunkers on that hole alone. And that's like more than half of the bunkers on the entire golf course. So they have kept the maintenance of bunkers, which is such a, a money pit for so many municipal and affordable daily fee courses. And they have just, you know, taken that kind of mostly off the table. It's going to be very straightforward to maintain these bunkers. And then finally, they did a lot of really smart, sensitive work on the greens, around the greens, coming up with some cool contours that make the game interesting. They're just, you know, beautifully contoured and tied in greens. They, there was some real sophisticated architecture put into that specific part of the course. That's where they put so much of their attention. And so I think that learning those three basic lessons about what the Glen Golf Park did would be enormously helpful for so many municipalities thinking about what to do with their golf courses, how to spend the little bits of money that they give, where to go with capital improvement projects when the opportunity comes up to do one of these I think what you do is you you look at a lot of what they did here and and try to apply some of those lessons to different specific sites around the country. That's uh I think I've got a similar trend. I I think the thing that's most exciting to me um you talked about Glen Golf Park, um another new public golf course that was it was a renovation is the park down in West Palm Beach. Lots of parks um, out there. Yeah. But to me, uh, another park and Chaska, so Golden Gate Park and Chaska. The loop uh, at Chaska. Yep. The loop at Chaska. Is it Chaska or Chaska? I think it's Chaska. It's Chaska. People say Chaska. I'm sure I'll get get reminded. I'll get. um, (laughs) One of us will. One of us is wrong. Somebody's wrong. (laughs) So those two courses to me stand out. Um, They are, I think, you know. So many people, and I think the first round of golf I played on, uh, played golf in, was at a par 31 in like Waukegan, Illinois, um, which was, it was like this kind of dumpy, 
you know, par three course, right? I think that that is the way that so many people play their first round of golf. And like, I don't really remember much about the golf course. I can, can kind of like remember a few, like the way it wound around a property. Um, that was a golf course that was the first round of my golf life. Another golf course that was instrumental in my, my life in, in golf was a par three course that's now a park. Um, in Libertyville, Illinois, called Riverside. It was it was right on the river. It flooded when it was. But par three courses are instrumental to people that enter the game. Like it is, it's got to be a sky high number of of percentage of rounds of somebody who's a beginner's first five rounds. So with uh, the Golden Gate Park project, which is in San Francisco, it's in Golden Gate Park. They took a a nine hole. Um, effectively par three golf course. It was overgrown. It was fine. It was it was a nice golf course, um, and you know a nice place to play. It, it sit, sits on sand dunes. It's like you know probably a half a mile from the ocean. Um, it sits on pure sand, and they took that golf course and they renovated it and built a brand new nine hole golf course. It's got a partnership with the First Tee of uh, San Francisco, and Jay Blasey did the renovation. Um, it was a 20 acre, uh, site and now it is 20 acres of fantastic golf. Um, just really fun greens. Chaska, a similar story. They took a, you know, kind of like a par 30 course. So, you know, a couple par fours and they renovated it and they made it a fully accessible golf course. So there's no bunkers. Um, anybody of any, you know, with any, anybody can go play golf there. Um, and they both share like very similar design characteristics. Like Golden Gate's got a few sand uh, bunkers, but like they're more like exposed sand because it's like you're you're on sand dunes. You'd be silly not to expose some sand, right? And there's you, you a couple... don't you don't want some uh, uh, revetted uh, pop bunkers or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So so there's a few you know there's some exposed sand. There's a couple bunkers. There's like kind of like a cool little like lion's mouth green that's got a bunker that you can play around. So there's very minimal bunkers. Uh, at Chaska, no bunkers. Both of them have fascinating greens, and both of them were done on a very small budget. I think I think the Golden Gate Park project was around two million, and the uh, the Chaska project was less than one point five. So these projects were done, undertaken, funded, you know, um, locally, and it, it represents a type of architecture, a type of project that's achievable in a lot of different locales, right? Because it's not over the top expensive and the end result is an amazing product. It's, it's a, you know, we talk about this and I've used this conversation, this topic or this analogy so often, but if you want to get somebody into coffee you don't take them to a gas station. You take them to a nice coffee shop and you give them maybe like, you know, you give them something that's going to appeal to their palate. Not, you know, and, and so often with golf, with these par three courses, we've given somebody like the worst form of golf, right? The, just the, everybody's played the par three course with just the dead flat green. It's a field, right? And these are, you know, these whole, these courses, spark imagination with their greens and it and i'm super excited 
Uh, both of those courses will be kind of big stars, I think, of 2024. I, I was lucky to see both of them um, this year. And, and I can't wait for more of these golf courses to happen. This is the trend that's really needed um, in, in public golf. And for both courses, they're going to remain extremely affordable. I think for city residents, the Golden Gate Park course is $22. So Right. And I think, you know, part of the hope here is that local government officials and residents can look at the projects that have been done on a small scale at these courses and then look at some of the other golf assets that they have locally and think, well, this little course looks a lot better than this big course now. Maybe if we set aside a little more money, we could do something cool with a big course too. Because San Francisco has some places that could use a little bit of love, some 18-hole courses that could be really cool with a bit of work. And I think probably the same is true in a lot of cities throughout the country. And so, you know, starting small is a really great idea for introducing cool architecture into a municipal golf system. And so I'm, I'm really glad to see that that's happening at these courses. Now, both of these open in 2024, right? Yep. Yeah. Er, okay. Early 2024. So I think, um, I think Golden Gate Park's plan is January. Right. Um, so, you know, a month away. Yeah. It's California. So you can play in January. Obviously can't, can't do the same in, in Minnesota, Minnesota, um, Minnesota. It should be a big story with the USAM at Hazeltine. Cause yeah. it's, you know, it's basically, it shares the lake that Hazeltine's on. Right. It's just on another extension of the lake. Yeah. Now, two things that I want to mention about these projects quickly. Um, one is that I believe there's a common link in terms of shapers at uh, Golden yeah. Gate Park and at Shaska. I believe Brett Hochstein worked on both projects. And, and Ben Warren. Ben Warren was the lead architect. Another, you know, very talented young shaper. Did, did Ben Warren my, work at uh, Golden Gate Park too? No, okay. no, he did right. not. Okay. So, and Jay Blasey, I did. I failed to mention Ben's name on the Chaska project. So, you know, it's a it's a, another example of exciting to see young names getting chances. Absolutely. And uh, the other thing people should know about the uh, about the Chaska project is that. Um, the the whole idea of the facility is that it's going to be radically accessible to adaptive golfers. So they're really trying to do everything they can to accommodate adaptive play and disability access. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that the project has taken a little while because they need to build some on-site facilities to really fulfill that mission. So the golf course has been shaped and and more or less finished for a while but basically it's kind of waiting on on the clubhouse and and other things to come in to make sure that the course can really right away serve its mission which is to uh, enhance the experience of uh, adaptive golfers so that that's something that's very important there that uh, you know again it's it's one of those things that uh, different places in the world who you know where people want to improve their golf they can look at that as an option to communicate to people that golf is not this kind of elitist cloistered sport that there can be a real effort to uh, reach out to the community and make golf an experience that uh, everybody can enjoy. 
So um, those are those courses. Now, th there were some some glossier renovations that we didn't mention that, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, maybe just quickly mention them. There's the Country Club near Cleveland. Gil Hans restored that golf course. I know that, that golf you, course is so you, good. You liked what you saw there. Yeah, I, I've I played that course pre-renovation or pre-restoration and and was really impressed with the land and some of the boldness of the way that the holes use the landforms on that property. Um, so uh, super excited to to see that. Maybe maybe Flynn's best work outside of Shinnecock. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen an awful lot of Flynn, but I would believe it. Like that's a really well designed golf course. Uh, the Lake Course at Olympic Club has opened back up after again a Gil Hance uh, restoration. Lookout Mountain has uh, gotten some attention for some of the really bold restoration work that Tyler Ray's team did there. So there's still a lot of action in the uh, restoration and renovation uh, category of uh, the golf course industry. But one overall shift that I'm noticing that I think I'm excited about is that a lot of the obvious restorations, like straightforward, we want to bring this course back to what it was because it was a great course in the first place and we couldn't possibly do anything better. A lot of those projects have been done, basically. And now what we're looking at- Well, it's time to re-restore them. <laughs> it's time, all right, time to restore again. So yeah, yeah, there's two paths here. We can try to convince green committees that they didn't restore it properly the first time and that we need to try it again, except with a bigger budget, which I hope we don't see a lot of. There's the other direction we could go with this opportunity or that it could go. I, I'm not sure that we can have any influence on it. This is These are just economic forces that are out of our control. But I'd like to see more courses that maybe – don't have very good golf courses, realize that they don't have very good golf courses that weren't particularly well-designed in the first place, that have worn out their welcome, that look dated at this point. I would like to see some of those golf courses hire talented architects trained in this neoclassical uh, mode that Corin Crenshaw and Tom Doak and Gil Hance have popularized and see what can be done with golf courses that have kind of seen their day and, and need to become something new. So I'd like to see more creative, aggressive, out-of-the-box renovations. I, I'm, I'm hoping to see some of that work. We've seen a few projects like that, but but I'd like to see more. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's kind of the next frontier, right? Is uh, And I think we're going to see a lot of that coming due with the irrigation systems needing to be replaced and, and a lot of courses that were built in 1980 and 1990 thinking about what what does the next 30 years look like for for us now that we're here with our irrigation yeah so all right we wanted to talk about uh one more topic right we wanted to talk about yeah uh, before and... that before that oh i want to talk about um a little personal experience let's do it you know i over the last uh i travel a lot from work and i you know i i noticed that like seven years of, of starting a business and traveling a bunch was taking a toll on me. I felt kind of sluggish. I didn't, you know, I was stressed out constantly. And if you're a longtime listener, you might know that I've been drinking AG1 for about a year. So when I started to drink AG1, uh, I could feel a real difference in, in just 
on every day. It helped me get going every day. It, it got me into a, most importantly, a healthy routine. I feel like if you do one healthy routine, you're way more likely to do a couple healthy routines. And that's what you can kind of build on and build on health over the course of the year. So that's uh, because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. Not only did I replace my multivitamin with AG1, but I love that every scoop also includes prebiotics, probiotics, and digestive enzymes for gut support. I wouldn't be doing this. You know, I wouldn't be doing prebiotics, probiotics if it wasn't in AG1. So I get the multivitamin. I just scoop it in there. I get all this in one spot. So AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. For any traveler that wants to do this, the travel packs are a necessity. They're awesome. They're super easy. Uh, go to drinkag1.com slash thefriedag. That's drinkag1.com slash thefriedag and check it out. All right. Let's get to new courses that might be old courses. New courses to us. Yes, new to us. So uh, we wanted to talk about, each Each of us wanted to talk about a course that we saw for the first time this past year that's not newly renovated, that's not newly built, but that we enjoyed and had never seen before. Uh, so this is just a little reflection on on the year. I saw I saw a lot of these courses. That there are some to choose from that that I, I really want to talk about. But if I if I had to choose one, I think I'd choose Winchester Country Club near Boston, Massachusetts. I like it. It's not a course that gets talked about a whole lot, and my understanding is that it's pretty private and that's that's probably why this is not a a, a public course like uh, the William J Devine golf course at Franklin Park that I played during the same trip and really enjoyed you know that's another Donald Ross course that I think people should should check out uh, on the public side but the reason Winchester stuck with me so much is that I don't know that I've seen any course from its era it was originally kind of, it was, it took its more or less its modern form in kind of the late teens is my understanding. And it kind of evolved from there through the twenties. I don't know that I've seen a course from that era aside from Yale that has so much massive earth moving. I mean, like usually at Older courses. If, if you're talking about like maximalist courses from the golden age of golf architecture, courses that, you know, don't, don't make any secret of the fact that the architects made some alterations to the landscape or sit on pieces of land that needed to be changed in order to be, uh, you know, formed into a golf course. Usually with courses like that from this era, you see the lion's share of the shaping, almost all of it around the greens, right? You see yep. the green pads built up in order to make them flat enough to be puttable. And you see some shaping of hazards around the greens, but usually the fairways kind of sit naturally. At Winchester, the thing that really struck me was 
that it sits on such a severe hillside that you really wouldn't be able to play golf on it if they hadn't basically lifted up about half of the fairways. So these are entire fairways that were built up from the hillside, like propped on these ledges. Ross's team just had to go and do this without modern machinery. And I think the shaping is really cool looking. It's it's pretty overt. Like you can see where they made changes, but it looks kind of rugged and gnarly, maybe because the course is just uh, older at this point and it's kind of settled into itself. But uh, looking at that course made me think about how little we understand the golden age of golf architecture and, and how many generalizations we make about it that are not entirely accurate. I think people would be shocked at how much earth moving went into making this golf course playable and, and how kind of interestingly it's pulled off. Um, and so I really enjoyed Winchester. It's going to get worked on soon. I think maybe even coming up this next year by Andrew green and, you know, Andrew green's a, a talented restoration specialist. One thing I do hope about Winchester, one thing that I, that I like about it right now and that I hope kind of stays with it a bit is how old it feels, right? Yeah. It, it, it really, you know, and, and there are ways in which it's old that are probably not appealing to members. You can see bunker liners sticking out. You can see that some stuff needs attention, but right now this course definitely feels like it's era. It feels like it comes straight to us from the 19 teens. And one thing I really hope is that green's team finds various ways to maintain that sense, even as they do some necessary updates across the golf course. And, and what you're talking about there is, is bunker sand color. Yeah. If, it, if it's bright white um, bunker sand, like right now the bunker sand there is basically like, looks like it was carted in from uh, a, a lake beach you know, yeah. and, and so, so talking, it, it looks like it's right. It looks right for, for the site. You're talking about bunker sand. You're talking about the grass, you know, when you go to a lot of renovation, uh, renovations, the grass will be like, you know, brand new monostand grass. Like the idea of keeping some of the greens like patchy, like some of the best, some of the best greens that I feel like have a lot of different coloration. It's an amalgamation of grasses, right? That's what gives it this old feel. Um, and I do feel like that's probably my least favorite trend with uh, with renovations um, is just the the way things look brand new. It's like, wait, you just you you lost some of the, you know, the essence of it. I you know, it's it's part of the cool thing about seeing an old building is that it's old. Right. You know, and same thing about the old golf course, right? There's just a, a feel to it when it when it has those those grasses that just don't look brand new. They're almost jarring, right? Yeah. So, um, I will. Uh, I'll go. I you know I've got a tough tough selection here. I um, you did a lot of travel in 2023. A decent amount, but I would say, um, I I'm gonna I'm gonna pick. You know, just generally with this this topic. It's a place that I find that exceeds my expectations is where I generally fall on this, right? Um, it's not necessarily the best course that I saw, but it's the one that I always that stick the the ones particularly that stick with me are the ones that exceed what I think they are um going into it. 
Um, so like, for example, I had really high expectations of Hollywood Golf Club, and they met those expectations. That was an amazing golf course. And I was, I like cannot wait to see it again. It is so cool, right? Um, I played Augusta National this year. I had extraordinarily high expectations. And it, it met those expectations. A lot of that, like I, I struggle with that course with like nostalgia, right? Um, I would say the courses, the two courses that stand out to me as exceeding the expectations I had going into them are Midland Hills in Minnesota. I um, I had always been very interested in this golf course because from the beginning of the Friday, one of the early kind of pieces that stood had us stood out a little bit was the were these template pieces, and I'd been talking to Mike Manthini, the superintendent there, for years about pictures and stuff, and they just didn't have very good pictures of the place, so I'd never really seen the golf course outside of a Google Earth straight down. Jim Urbina just did some renovation work there, uh, restoration work there. And uh, it's really wonderful. Uh, the back nine is extraordinary. Like the back nine is is great. It is like perfectly scaled golf ground. <clears throat> and it's got some really cool templates, some unique templates. Like one of the things that's super cool there is their Baritz hole. The, the, the trough in the middle of the Baritz kind of goes on a diagonal, right? As opposed to a straight line. I've never seen a Rainer Baritz look that way, right? Where it's kind of like diagonal. Um, the Alps hole is unbelievable. You get over and then you're and then when you're coming out of the Alps hole, if you look back, you see the Minneapolis uh, skyline. It's really cool. Uh, the Redan hole is kind of like a Redan punch bowl. It's a really unique um, variety. And then on the front nine, the front nine is no slouch. It's got a really neat Alps or a really neat knoll hole like that course is wildly under talked about. Nobody talks about that golf course like in the in the Twin Cities area. And I think it's really good. Um I think it's a lot better than some courses that are talked about a much, much more. Um the other one, and I think like a lot of it's like nobody's seen it. Like the photos, like we live in this culture with Instagram, right? Where you see these courses and people are, oh, I want to play there. I don't think anybody has really seen Midland Hills until this year. <laughs> you know? Um so uh, the other one that I that stood out as like blowing away expectations was St. George's in in uh, on Long Island. Um, it's right next to Port Jefferson. Uh, it's an easy ferry from like Connecticut and stuff. And it's just like one of those like it just a constant reminder when you go to Long Island is like how much of the oxygen National Golf Links and uh, Shinnecock mm-hmm. like suck up. Yeah. And the, the St. George's is a Devereaux Emmett golf mm-hmm. course and Devereaux Emmett is a you know one one of the most significant designers in Connecticut and New York from the early golden age to the mid golden age he he did a lot of work in that region but not much outside of it and so he's yeah. probably not as well known as a lot of equally gifted architects who traveled a bit more fun fact about Devereaux Emmett is that he he uh was very much on site and uh, helping during the construction of National Golf Links. He was one of the original funders of that project and was friends with C.B. McDonald. And so, uh, yeah, he's he's very entwined with that whole area and its uh, golf architecture. 
Yeah, so he he this is his course, like his family course, right? They want he wanted to build his what Charles his, his what, national what CB McDonald yeah. had at Nashville. He wanted his own, and he scoured like the area where he's from for a long time, trying to find land. Like he looked at a lot of different sites. He settled on this one. It's a it's awesome, awesome land. And I think the reason it doesn't get talked about at all is because it's like sixty three hundred yards. But you wouldn't know it's 6,300 yards. It's like just like you're playing up and over. There's a bunch of blind tee shots up and, you know, you're playing significant elevation. It is so fun. It is so fun. It's got like the right amount of like dramatic Long Island scale where you're like, wow, like this is why there's great golf here is like, look at this. Look at what the, the way this hole traverses this land. But then it's got like some really like playful, humorous quirk to it. Right. Um, some above ground, uh, you know, hazards, some like really deep trench bunkers. Yeah. Crazy, lot, crazy good... bunkering, like just like splatters, yeah. splatters of bunkering. Yeah. So um, it's a cool rest restoration story too. the club's kind of been at it. Uh, the old superintendent, Adam Jesse and, and Gil Hans have been kind of working at this since like the 90s. Um, and it is, um, it, they do a little by little and the course keeps getting better. It's almost all the way back to like, when you look at the old aerial to what it is today, it's like so close to being all the way back. It is an awesome place. We're having an event there in August. I like, I'm, I'm jacked about it. I'm like so excited. Cool. Okay. Um, I think we're at the point when we can talk briefly about, uh, stuff that we're looking forward to seeing in 2024. I, I really just want to, uh, hit this very quickly, but, uh, you know, a lot of course openings coming up, a lot of re renovations are going to, uh, you know, open up as well. Um, but, uh, something I'm particularly excited to see is some work from Kyle France, some original designs from Kyle France. Kyle is maybe best known for his restorations of, the Ross courses just outside of the Pinehurst Resort, so Mid Pines, Pine Needles, and Southern Pines. Kyle Franz did the work at all those courses that you know has really made them just as impressive as most of what the Pinehurst Resort itself has to offer. And recently, Kyle has started to get more new build jobs, um, and one of those is outside of Austin, Texas, at Luling. Uh, there's more work that he's doing at Cabot, Cabot Citrus Farms. There's a project that opens in the fall, I think. And I, I think yeah. I, you know I don't have an exact date, and also there are so many different courses at uh, Cabot Citrus Farms. I think it's the Carew course. The Carew, yeah. Fun. There's there's some names to these courses: Carew, I think it's Roost, the Carew, Squeeze, the Carew, Wedge. The, the Carew course at Cabot Citrus. I believe it's a a fall opening. Yes, which. That, it's it's basically be... what used to be the Fazio course there, right? The the, yeah, the, the Pine, Pine Barrens course, which was it's an amazing property. It's yeah. an amazing property. It's so widely I'm regarded excited. as one of uh, one of the Faz's best designs and probably his best uh, publicly accessible design. But they've made the bold decision to just kind of let Cal Franz go crazy on it. And so you know, I'm just curious to to see what he produces. He is he's also uh, building Broom Sedge, mm -hmm. which is That's outside right. of uh, Columbia, and that I think the plan is to have some preview play by Late fall of twenty point four. Yeah, and one of the cool things about that golf course is that uh, it it plans to have some some very accessible aspects to it for the public while it's a private club it will be accessible yeah yeah so uh he's working on some 
interesting new build projects. And just as we talked about with Brian Schneider and Blake Conan, there is this new generation of architects coming up who have worked for years, made it through the recession by doing jobs for Corin Crenshaw, Tom Doak, Gil Hance, David McClay Kidd, right? Uh, Ron Force, uh, you know, any number of architects who are getting more more jobs than the younger generation, these new newly emerging architects worked for them. And now they're getting some opportunities to go crazy on their own pieces of land. And I know from talking to Kyle Franz that he has a lot of ideas about where he wants to take the craft next. And so do I know whether I'm going to love everything he does at these courses? No, I don't know that because I haven't seen them, but I can almost be certain that it's going to be really interesting, really bold, and it's going to push in some new directions that we haven't seen golf architecture push recently. So looking forward to that. All right. Uh, you talked about this. One thing I'm super excited about is the renovation of Medina, just being uh, somebody from Chicago. Uh, it is it is our real hope for major championship the, golf. The last hope of Chicago for a, <laughs> so for only a major championship venue. A I major mean, champion- Olympia Fields might have something to say. I right? don't think I don't think the USGA has gone back. There okay, ever. all right. So, all right. Uh, uh, Medina has a lot of things working its benefit. It uh, obviously Chicago, but massive infrastructure to host any type of tournament, you know, Ryder Cup to U.S. Open. It, there are very few golf properties with as much space. Um, and I am super excited to see uh, OCM, Ogilvy, uh, Cocking, and Mead. Uh, they're, you know, they're getting, they're kind of similar to Fran, Kyle France. They're getting, we're going to see some of their first work come online. They've had the Shady Oaks project that's been really kind of quiet what people have said about it they're building 36 holes at fall line they have the medina renovation that's coming online and uh it is uh it's and then they have a project up in minneapolis and i think you know from from that perspective it's super exciting to see what a you know a dyed in the wool championship course that has like you know a big history of like we're just gonna like we're going all in on on what 1980s championship golf is, right? Hard, hard, like narrow fairways, bunkers around the greens, and it's going to be completely different. And hopefully there's a PGA Tour and a President's Cup around when they're supposed to host in 2026, hopefully. And we'll get to see a, a new architect's group's idea of what championship golf is. And, and I think that's super exciting. Um, so that, that one to me is kind of a Homer pick. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. All right. My Homer pick is the, the shorties course at, at Bandon. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly Homer since well, it's like a four hour Pacific, drive for me. Us Pacific Northwest guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's stick together. Yeah. Am I in central California? Is Portland, Oregon in central California? <laughs> No, no, no. Oh, but well, that. Oh, no, that would be ridiculous to say that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 only only reasonable takes about geography here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So us two Pacific Northwesterns got to stick together. Us Cas- Cascadians. <laughs> All right, I think All I right. think that's it from my end. Uh, we've kind we kind of covered it. Yeah, this uh, we'll we'll talk soon. And uh, and thanks for coming on. And can't wait for twenty twenty four and fresh golf courses. 
Thanks to everybody for a great year. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Uh, A quick reminder. I'm a procrastinator. I have done no holiday shopping as of right now. It's not a good situation. Uh, This is the the curse that I put myself in every year. Um, A great last-minute gift for any golf lover, and especially if you've been a part of it um, and you've enjoyed it. Give somebody the gift of Club TFE. Uh, you can add a, you, there's a gifting option on the website. So if you visit thefriedegg.com slash membership, you can see all the details there. You can give it as a gift. Um, it's $120 for the year. It gives you loads of benefit, but mostly like I think the biggest benefit and what we're trying to build is like you're, you're going to get a lot of content and a lot more from us, uh, detailed course profiles, conversations about golf courses, uh, I assume if you're here, that's something you're interested in at this point in the podcast. So uh, this is where you can get more. Uh, Garrett does an awesome job uh, with Design Notebook. I'm in and out of that, but he does an awesome job quarterbacking that. That's a weekly feature that just kind of dives into all the trends and news and different happenings around uh, golf courses across the world. So thank you guys for the support for those that have joined club TFE. And if you're, if you're looking for a golf lover gift, give the gift of club TFE. Thanks. And uh, we will be back next week with a new episode of the Friday golf podcast. Mm -hmm.